everybody and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ari and today on our panel we have Alex. Hello. And Tessa. Hi. And today we're talking about what to do when, let's say, the API endpoint that you need to integrate with isn't ready yet, but you need to still continue development. So what are our options there? Do you just make a file and then import that in? Do you just literally copy and paste it into the data and your component? (laughs) I've done lots of different things. I mean, the obvious easiest answer here is that you, in plain text, paste your credentials (laughs) into a test file and then make the API calls live as you you need to. And then you just have to keep updating that test file with with the new credentials, right? That's super, super simple. Actually, I think the best practice approach in 2021 is send the last four of your social and your mother's maiden name to at Gloomy Loomy. (laughs) (laughs) so no i don't think that you should paste your credentials in plain text don't anybody do that write them down in a notebook obviously yeah there you go so i know in the past i have done different strategies of it typically what i will do a lot of the time is that i will go and i will get the api and actually capture some json from it just sort of like a standard response thing that I need. Okay, but what if, what if the API doesn't exist yet? Yeah, I thought I, I was like, did I misunderstand the question? I thought you said there was no, there was nothing there. Oh, then I will cry and wait for the devs to finish making the endpoint that I need. Clearly, that's best option right there. No, I would make a file. I would make, I would definitely make a separate JSON file, right? Like I would have some form of JSON blob somewhere that I either handwrite or if the API exists and I just want to not have to hit the API, be able to consistently make that thing, I would have it stored. And also depending on how much time and energy you have, you may be able to like magically generate some of that information. Well, not all of us are unicorns, Alex. So do you want to expand on that for the class? I'm looking up the Python package. Hold on. (laughs) A thing I will sometimes do is, so occasionally I have to work with data that while the API currently exists, new fields are going to be added to it that aren't available yet. So what I like to do is, yeah, grab an output and then use a map function to add in the new fields and like a lot of times it'll be like a date field or something and then so I'll just use like a randomized date function <laughs> and have it write to a new file <laughs> because originally I was just you know adding those dates by hand and oh my god that is annoying and tedious why not just let node do the work for you yeah I guess maybe it also depends on what you need the data for or like what you're building yeah. for the API because usually like I was mostly just building reusable components. So like the backend developer would be like, here's the shape of the API data that is definitely not going to change 30 times in the next two days. (laughs) And so I'd I'd paste that into my view component data because like I don't need to do anything fancy and then make the component work with that shape and then, you know, delete it and replace it with the real data when the API was ready. 
And you said you had no experience doing this. Well, I didn't I didn't mock the data <laughs> myself. Somebody else mocked it and in the process mocked me. Oh. <laughs> well, and there there are packages out there that you can say, here's what the data structure will look like, and it'll give you mock data objects, right? So you could be like, here's what my data is going to look like. It's going to have a name, and that's a string, and then it's going to have this thing, and that's a number, and then it's going to have this thing. It's That's a date or whatever, and it'll just sort of like nice. make a bunch of stuff, and it'll be great. Does it make that sound? When it you does. Use it? It's, um, I don't know why nice. they included that sound effect with it. But. <laughs> Are you sure it's included and not like a cat is getting into a box coincidentally every time you run the package? That may be too. It may be that a cat is just getting into a box. But it sounds like to run this package, you'd need Python, which like, I don't know if things have changed with the newest Mac OSs, but I always felt like running Python was kind of a headache because it is Python 2, is it Python 3? Okay, I don't have Python 3. Okay, if I install Python 3, the alias is not right. It's not running. Mm. So the specific package that I was thinking of off the top of my head is called Hypothesis, which is a Python package. Hypothesis was right there. Or Python. That would be too hard to say. Pythosis. Nope. I can't. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) It's really meant for like creating, very quickly creating mock data for you to be able to run tests. And so you're not reusing, you're not handwriting the test. You're like, this should take a string and make like do stuff. And so I think it has some ways that you can, you do some stuff like that. That is where I've experienced it before. However, I know that there are other packages in other languages that do similar things. I feel like there must also be a site that does this or something, which personally I think is ideal because I don't do everything in my terminal. Like I don't want to install something just to make fake data that I'm going to use once. Yeah, I, so even if someone is, is yeah, say providing you the the JSON for the data, I know that sometimes you, you need to actually be able to figure out the integration part of the API before the API is, is ready. Like, you know, cause a lot of times you're going to need to transform the data somehow once you get the data. And so you need to be able to make sure that all of your async functions are worked out properly. And I have seen a few different options for doing things like that. Specifically, someone suggested a, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of this website, but for an interview, I had to load fake data into a website and then hit that as an API but I wasn't a huge fan of that. <laughs> it felt very clunky. But one thing I have found that I really like is Malkoon. It essentially just lets you create an API, you specify the endpoint, and then you just like paste in the data you want it to return. And you can specify various headers and things like that. So like it's a pretty robust way of mocking an API endpoint. That's really nice. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking at this. This is very nice looking. Yeah, another one that I've used sometimes, especially if I'm just like troubleshooting something and I don't necessarily need a specific data structure or anything like that, but I need to be able to test like responses, like yeah. error responses or something like that. HTTPbin.org is a great free resource that basically echoes what you send to it sometimes. And like you have lots of different options. You can do like get, post, put, patch, delete, whatever. And you can get all the various error numbers that you want and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a really, it's a good resource for if you're like doing a thing and you're like, why is this not, what am I sending? Like, why can't I see what I'm sending and what what am I sending? That's a really good way to like get the response that you're looking for and like do a bunch of things like that. 
Another one that I've heard about that I haven't had the opportunity to use, but I think is fantastically exciting because you could, it's sort of a combination of some of these, but it also would be like a very good way to run like a testing suite is if you're wanting to test an integration test of like, make sure the whole application works, but you don't want to be hitting the real API. The thing that I've seen that I'm, I need to find a good project to use this on is called mock service worker, where it will install a service worker for your project. So when you spin it up, the service worker will run and will intercept API calls. So you never actually hit the API, but you can respond with the response that you want. So you could have like predefined endpoints and be like, if I try to do this thing, it's going to give me this type of error. If I try to do this thing, it's going to do this. And so it's, it's a service worker. So it's all in the browser and it just sort of does its stuff. And then you can keep that locally within your test. I had heard about this approach before. I think it's really smart because it's sort of, it, it allows your application to function the way that it's supposed to, and it doesn't know any better. And the, service worker part becomes like whatever you want it to be. It can proxy through or you can have it like actually catch responses and do something with it. So that's always good. So, but if you already have a working API, why would you want to go through the trouble of making all these fake responses instead of actually hitting the endpoint? Uh, Let's say you're on AWS and Mm -hmm. it costs money every time you hit that API. Or there's a lot, I work for a healthcare company and so we have to be HIPAA compliant. So like we're SOC 2 compliant. So like we have all the security stuff in place and it can get really annoying to run integration tests onto that. Trust me, I know. So no, that sounds awesome. I'm definitely gonna have to look into that. And another thing that it's good for too is like just local testing in general. If you're wanting to be able to run tests quickly, having to run your tests against an actual API, that can take a while because you're having to do a full-on HTTP request. They're having to go all the way out to the database, get all the things and come back. Each request could take 300 milliseconds. Yeah, 300 milliseconds. But that stacks up, right? Like That means that if each test is one API request, then you can do three tests a second, basically, right? And like, yeah, that doesn't seem like much if you have five tests. It'll happen in a couple of seconds. But if you have like a thousand tests, suddenly that's going to take a little bit. So being able to do something where rather than having that delay, that 300 millisecond delay, it's instantaneous. You can bypass a lot of the like slowness of these tests, especially if you're not wanting to have to actually test the API itself. If you're wanting to test the functionality of the front end then that could be a thing that would help move things along a little bit. So fun fact about the product I currently work on, we technically maintain two completely different versions of our API. One that runs on Express purely for local development. (laughs) And then one that's actually deployed to our AWS, CloudFormation, whatever, whatever. I don't fully understand our infrastructure, but... (laughs) So, I mean, fortunately, we have separated out the logic in a way that, you know, the controller is utilized by both APIs, but I have to maintain a completely separate API in Express just so I can develop locally. (laughs) Wow. 
Yes. Wow. You might say that socks. Wow. 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 Well, yeah, no. And so it allows me to develop locally without having to use a database, which it does mean that for certain things, it's not great. Obviously, I'm not going to have any persistent data. So if I'm trying to work on changing the state of things, it it can get a little tricky. In fact, there are certain things I just never implemented. (laughs) So it will always error out locally. (laughs) But, you know, at least uh, I know that our error handling works on those. I do feel like data transformation is one of the most painful parts of dealing with APIs, especially when the API is not in place, because ideally, if you're in that sweet spot of you need to be doing something with an API, but the API hasn't been built yet, then you would think that the front end usage of the API would dictate the shape of the data. But in reality, you often have no say in what the shape of the data is. So you do all these transformations, and then the API changes again to be a better shape. Nobody asked you about the better shape, but now there's a better shape. And so you have to redo all of your API transformation logic. And I, I think that process can be pretty painful. Yeah. So we do analytics. And so the way that data is for data people is very different than say how I want to consume it. Yeah. We literally have an entire layer on the back end that is just designed to transform the data into the structure that will be sent to the front end. Because yeah, like data itself is often not that useful. It's how you then make it into something readable by by honestly and it's best if it's readable by both humans and machines because yeah but yeah no we we intentionally made it so that the way that the data is stored is completely separate from the needs of the api thank goodness yeah because i think sometimes there is at least a couple different paradigms right some people would between the two prefer making it human readable where others would prefer keeping it the shape of the data for the database And that really only serves that one juncture where you have to send data to the database and is otherwise often mostly unhelpful. Yeah. And the other thing is it allows us to use the same shape of data for, let's say, like different healthcare organizations while keeping their data completely isolated from each other. It's the old plug and chug. This also sort of ties into like data structures and where is your source of truth of what the data structure is. If the only source of truth is just call the API to get some data or something like that, then you're going to have problems. I don't care. But like having some sort of definition of what that data structure is somewhere of like, when we get a data object back, it's going to look like this makes it a lot easier to also do things with it programmatically too. Okay, but what do you so, mean somewhere? Because technically, if I can get it by hitting the API, then it's somewhere, right? Right. I'm saying my experience with this. We'll go that we'll go down this route. My experience with this is in Python. Every time you you say this route, I always wonder what all of the other potential routes are and if one anyway keep going. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about Ruby on Rails that I've not used since version 0.83. So in Python, there is a web framework called Django. And with Django, a big part of it is that you define 
your data model. You say, here is what this part piece of data is. I'm going to have a book and my book has a title and that is a string. And then I have uh, author and that is of type author. And then you can make an author type and then like they're linked to each other, right? So like you define sort of your data structure, your, like how your data connects to each other and relates to each other and all of this stuff. And then it has tools where you can just be like, migrate this and it automatically populates your database with all the correct tables and columns and whatnot. And with, I know that there, I think, I think I was talking to someone about this just the other day. I think like Redwood JS does something similar like this, where you can define your data model. And so that's what I mean. It's like having somewhere where you define that data model. We can always say like you could define it as a, as a TypeScript type. <gasps> yeah. I said the T word. I'm not gonna lie. I do like interfaces for yeah, that they're, reason. They're pretty great. But that's sort of having it actually defined somewhere is helpful. Another option that you can do that that is more helpful than you realize is something like an open API spec file yep. where there is a consistent way of defining what data is and how you can consume it and all sorts of fun things like that. So what is that? So back in the day, there was a thing called Swagger. People still use that now. Why are you making it sound a million years old? Well, no, no, no. So Swagger was the original implementation where it was a way to define API files, like an API, what it does and all of that stuff. And there was Swagger version one and Swagger version two. At that point, it became prevalent enough. Swagger is actually a company. And the format became prevalent enough. People were like, we don't like that a single company is controlling this format. And the company was like, we hear you. And so they made the open API spec, which is basically Swagger 3.0. Open API spec 3 is the new version of Swagger, but it's actually controlled by not the company. And you can utilize it in things other than just Swagger. Yes, and you can utilize it in things other than just Swagger. So that is, it's it's a way to define APIs. You get to say, here are my routes. Here are the parameters that I'm expecting. Here are the methods you can use. Here's the type of data structure that it'll return. Here are the different response types it could possibly return. It might return JSON. It might return HTML. It might return XML. So is that it's its own separate thing, like how, for example, the docs for my app might live on their own separate site in their own separate repo or whatever, or is it somehow integrated into the flow of the app? It Yes. It can be both. It can be both. <laughs> there are plugins, going back to my bad example, but we're on a view podcast, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Python, with Django, there are plugins So you wouldn't where, talk about it on a React podcast? No, I wouldn't. They really don't like white space. With Django, you have your data models that you can define, there are plugins where you can say, hey, generate an open API spec for me based on what my data structure is, how my application is laid out. So there are ways where like it can go both ways of like rather than like the application defining the open API spec, the application or rather than the open API spec defining the application, the application can define the open API spec. But I've also seen it where you can use an open API spec file and that is where your error messages go. That is where all of these other things go 
And then you have your application use that information. So you can have technical writers updating information in an open API spec file, and then the application itself is using it. So yeah, there are options. There are, you can go both ways. You can have them two completely independent things that just function independently of each other completely. That's a thing that happens. So yeah, all of that is to say there are lots and lots and lots of different ways of defining data and data structures. So there are libraries that will use JS doc annotations to generate your open API spec. So nice. Not just Python. Yeah. 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 Python was the only example I had off the top of my head. I've not attempted to do that in JavaScript. So I like how you were like, this is a view podcast, so I'm going to go ahead and use the Python example. I'm still trying to... Trying to talk out my ass that I don't know. I thought that's what you as a white man were supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, some days I'm not going to try as hard to be... (laughs) (laughs) So how much of this swagger maintenance stuff or like API definition maintenance stuff in general, fall on the person consuming the API versus the person creating the API? Like, how often do we think this is within the realm of front end versus some other subset of web development? It really should be on the back end, you know, because like I said, one of the easiest ways to do it is to use annotations within your back end files. And so, really, yeah, the back end developer as they're building the API should just be adding those annotations to generate the spec. If they're not, it's certainly not the responsibility of the front end developer to go back in there and go into their files and add the annotations that they failed to add. I was going to say, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but I felt like should was doing a lot of heavy lifting there. I mean, yes, (laughs) but I would say that if you're in a situation where you're the front end dev having to go into back end files to add annotations, you should probably try to find a different place to work. (laughs) So let's say that you don't know anything about mocking data or playing with APIs. Where would be a good place for someone to learn more about that, maybe in general, but also within the view context specifically? Because I do feel like that that's something that's not really covered by the, the docs the last time I checked. When you all make an API call, do you generally make it just like right in the component that needs it? Or do you do it in some special other file? Oh man, that we could literally do an entire episode on that. This is now, this is now wait, where to put your API calls as <laughs> as the episode. So for me, I always create kind of a data abstraction layer of sorts where I say, when you want data, call the use this function, and it will give you data, right? And then I don't care where that data comes from. I just need data to come out of it eventually. And so if you can split out all of the data stuff into its own thing, then one option is you can just mock your data function call and just return some data that way. Which I've done that. I do think it's important to have an API abstraction within your view app and not just be directly calling Axios or whatever you're using in a component. 
you should have a function in between that's calling Axios so that yes, so that it makes it very easy to mock that when running tests. I mean, it also sounds like another potential advantage there is adding this like cushion in between, even though it's like extra work sometimes, because for example, that pattern that Chris talked about a while ago, when you're developing a component library, but you also want to use an external component library and you want to have a wrapper around it so that if you change your outside component library, then at least the APIs for the components that you're using doesn't have to change across your app. Exactly. One thing that I actually found was pretty useful is at one job I had, we did factory functions for our APIs. So literally you would hand it your success and failure callbacks, and then it would just plug those in as needed within the function. But yeah, yeah, that way it allowed us to always be utilizing the same function for any given endpoint, but it also allowed us to handle it differently depending on where we were using it. Another place to look and get more information about this type of stuff, too, is Cypress actually has a network intercept command where you can say, hey, look for any outgoing stuff to these addresses, and you can do it on a per test basis. And then that way you can right there, mock the data if you need to, or intercept the data and change it, add fields, whatnot, remove fields, be like, we should, it should blow up if this thing is not available or something, right? And then that way, you can just do it right there in your tests in the browser. Shout out to Cypress, because they're cool. Also, just Googling, it looks like a few of these apps that let you test your endpoints and stuff have a few guides on API mocking. So that might be another resource. I'll add them in the show notes, but I haven't used any of them, so I can't speak to them. But if anybody knows or has a favorite resource for that, you know who to add to give us that info. But I think it's tough because a lot of times the stuff It's not really stuff that you can learn yourself or is covered by classes or blog posts or whatever. It's something you learn on the job, either by reading the existing code or like somebody tells you how to do it, which means that if you're in a situation like we talked about one of our earlier episodes, like you're the only dev or something, or you're you're new to the role and nobody is there to show you how to do things, you're in trouble. No, that's why you just listen to podcasts like this. (laughs) (laughs) Where we gave them no resources. (laughs) Yeah, if you really if you really want to learn how to mock things really well, just listen to Ari and Tessa talk to me a lot. And then there we go. (laughs) You will learn how to mock mock people. Don't you mean the other way around, Mr. Actually? Well, actually. Well, actually. If you really just want to get practice doing it, build a side project where you don't build the API until the end. <laughs> or apply to a bunch of jobs and they give you a take-home challenge. That too. Yes. No, a lot of my <laughs> a lot of my worst mocking experiences came from take-home challenges. Are there any really painful or memorable mistakes? or good decisions that y'all have made when it comes to working with APIs and mock data that you wish you had known earlier in your career? Don't trust mock implementations of things. 
don't. You don't have full tests if you only test based on a mock. My best example of this is we were using Google Map. There's a mock library for Google Maps that allows you to run it in end to end tests. We were using this and the mocks were wrong. They were wrong and they're made by Google. They are not implemented the same way as the actual Google thing and it screwed me up. So, meaning like the shape of the data was wrong? No, the interface for it was wrong. I think like in the real Google Maps, they define things on the using dot prototype like to add it to objects and in these mocks they had it as es6 classes and so like if you went to inspect the prototype you couldn't because none of the things would show up because that's an es6 class thing it was complicated it was a very weird complicated very specific thing but like because there was this slight implementation difference it completely did not you couldn't do the thing that we were trying to do it sounds like then that's Another reason that auto-generating your API docs is really important, but I would guess that the auto-generation by itself is not enough, depending on how thoroughly or not thoroughly you've set up the annotations or whatever. Everybody is nodding so vigorously. Yeah. Yes. It's like, we, <laughs> I, I don't know if we all remember, but I feel like everyone here remembers like the old days of the Angular JS auto-docs that were famously wonderful. I don't remember that. Any documentation from Google, really, any of the, if you try to go look up any of the Google documentation on, on a lot of different things, it's very clearly automatically generated from some form of source code. And it is horrific. It is. I would say Google app scripts docs are surprisingly okay. The acronym on the other hand, not great. Yeah. Just got that. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So don't assume, don't assume anything. If you're using a mock and something is going wrong, assume it's the mock. That's the only thing to assume is that if you've verified it's not your code, it's probably theirs. It's probably the mock. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times things have worked locally, but once they were deployed, they didn't work because I failed to make some change in my local mock data that broke everything else (laughs) once the real thing was trying to interact with it. Especially when you have like a really complicated data shape or something with a lot of like sub shapes within the larger shape or whatever. Oh, it's such a nightmare to make to update the mock data. Yeah, no, one memorable experience with mock data I had was it was it was actually when I was interviewing for the current job I have, which I love my job, but they gave a, a very sparse example of some possible mock data you might use. Only there was a typo in it that broke things and having to like spend part of my precious time, because <laughs> this was a time to take home, trying to figure out where the typo was, was not super fun. So that is why it is usually good to use an editor that's going to give you some some guardrails in terms of like missing brackets and whatnot when you're making fake data i think it was a missing bracket that was the problem (laughs) oh i'm surprised that that wasn't caught in like 
running, testing the app or whatever, linting, anything. No, it was, well, the the data was presented in a markdown file and obviously oh, okay. markdown's not going to catch it. Oh, yeah. For a second, I thought you were going to say like a Word doc or something. I was like, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, one step above. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, it is time to move on to picks for this week. Alex, would you like to go first? Actually, you don't have a choice. You're going first. Ha! It's more of a comment than a question. It's more of a... (laughs) I know. (laughs) So my pick this week has actually been picked before, um, but not... (gasps) I don't think it by me. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. By you. My pick this week is a book. It is called The Gilded Ones by Namina Forna and it is it was recommended by a previous guest of ours Amina Foon and I finally got around to reading it and it was very good and I would like to recommend it because I thought it was a very good read. Namina was like Amina's cousin, right? I think. Yes, I believe yeah. it's Amina's cousin. And there is a sequel coming out in march i think that i may have already pre-ordered nice looking forward to that expect that in a few months <laughs> this might be the first time i've seen you pick a book that wasn't linked to like watching a show but i hope they make a show so that i can go watch it mm-hmm. it would translate to a show very well but you would lose a lot of it you would lose mm. a lot of it there's a lot of like the thoughts going on in her head because you're hearing it, you're seeing everything from like her perspective. A lot of the book focuses on like working through like trauma stuff. It's really interesting. I I thought it was really interesting. So, so yeah, that is my pick. Okay. Tessa, do you have any picks this week? I mean, I already know you do, but whatever. (laughs) Suspend the disbelief, Ari. You can't break the fourth wall like that. (laughs) Oops. So my first pick is J Crosswords. It is a crossword app, um, but for Japanese. I don't usually do crosswords, but and I've I don't usually play puzzle games in other languages than English. It's fun because it's just like gamified studying. It's just like vocab review. So I like being like, oh yeah, here's this word and that word, and I don't have to decipher any obscure clues, which is maybe part of the reason I don't do crosswords. I don't know. I'm just not into them. So that's been kind of a fun distraction and it's available on Android and iOS. And my other pick is Trader Joe's chocolate chip cookies. They're the kind that come in a cardboard box with a cellophane window. I like them because (laughs) they don't taste like chocolate chip cookies. Like you can barely even taste the chocolate. They kind of taste like ginger snap cookies, but without a super strong overwhelming taste and no like cloying sweet aftertaste. So I like them. I couldn't find a link to them on Trader Joe's. So instead, I linked to a blog review where they rated them like 2.5 stars. Because <laughs> again, they don't really taste like chocolate chip cookies, but I enjoy them. Yep, those are my picks. Okay. My pick this week is the show Superstore. I recently rewatched the whole thing. And every time I'm like, wow, this show is great. I love the the banter and the dialogue and it's just very funny. So yeah, you should watch that. Is this the one with the the blue vest and the guy from Mad Men who lost his pinky? Is yes. Like, okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Once you've, <laughs> if you've watched Mad Men, it's a little hard to watch at first because you're just like, that guy lost his mind on Mad Men. Is he okay? I'm not sure. That's not all he lost. <laughs> yes. No. 
Yeah, it stars Ben Feldman and America Ferreira, and I love her so much. So you, I think it's available on Hulu and Peacock, so you have some options. But anyway, that is all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, you should. And you can do that at Enjoy the View Cast. And you can see pictures of our cats at Enjoy the View Cats. <laughs> and be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. And if you love us, please leave a review. It helps other people find us. And remember to tell everyone you know about how awesome we are so that they'll listen to it too. And then it'll just explode into virality. And yeah, no. Anyway, if you like us, tell other people. We like it when people like us. So speaking of liking us. Which I know is like a really rare trait. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not like other podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And if you do like the show, please consider supporting us on, was it Kofi? (laughs) Kofi, which is ko-fi.com slash enjoy the view. Just to be very clear, we don't make any money whatsoever off of making this podcast. In fact, some people have actually lost money making this podcast. So if you would like to help us keep going, that is the best way to do so. It pays for editing costs and all of that stuff. It's to keep the show going. So it would be super helpful. Anyway, thank you for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view.